Hello and welcome to the February instalment of the Shameless Book Club. This month we read If I Had Your Face by Frances Cha. The novel is set in contemporary Seoul, South Korea and follows four young women making their way in a world defined by impossibly high standards of beauty, secret room salons catering to wealthy men, strict social hierarchies and K-pop fan mania. Before we jump into today's episode, I am joined, as always, by my lovely co-hosts, Michelle Andrews and Annabelle Lee. Hello, Zara McDonald. Hello, Hello. Annabelle Lee. Hello, Zara McDonald. Hello, Michelle Andrews. Hi, <laughs> everyone, guys. I'm so, so excited to jump into this episode. I read this book over summer, recommended it on the podcast. Now we're here. Now we're talking about it. As always, where we want to start today is with Frances Cha and with the book itself for a bit of background. Annabelle, do you want to kick us off? Sure. So Frances Cha has a background in journalism. So she did a bunch of research before this book came out, specifically about the ins and outs of plastic surgery in South Korea. So she actually told the Korean Herald that it took almost 10 years to publish. She said, I honestly thought I would die before I got the book in my hand. And interestingly, she also said that all the editors that got back to her after they read the book were all Asian women, which says a lot about the kind of content that we crave. Yeah. Yeah. So no wonder this book takes us to South Korea and to the US as well. Frances was born in Minnesota. She then moved to Texas at the age of four, Hong Kong at eight, and then South Korea aged 11. She now divides her time. She divides every year between Brooklyn and Seoul. She's also well-versed in the way that South Korean women think and act and live, not only because she is one, but because she was the travel and culture editor for CNN in Seoul. Yeah, and I think for that reason, when I was reading this book, I was like, she really did bring to life Seoul very well. I mean, I've never been there, but I think maybe that's even a stronger advertisement for how she did it because I felt like I was there. Like Mm. I really felt like she described the culture and the city in a way that was quite vivid for me anyway. I think what's most interesting, of course, about this book is Seoul is widely regarded as being the plastic surgery capital of the world. This stat that I see thrown around everywhere in almost every article I read about this book is the one where it's an estimated one in three women will elect to have a procedure before the age of 30. And it's against that backdrop, Annabelle, that we have this novel. Yeah, exactly. And I've read some stuff about the most common surgeries that happen Mm. in South Korea. One of the most common surgeries is a double eyelid surgery, which I've like (laughs) looked into. I haven't had it done, but it's very interesting. There's a bunch of discourse online about the kinds of surgeries that women in South Korea get and how they are kind of like more Eurocentric Mm. and maybe like trying to mirror more of a white look. Interestingly enough, though, Frances actually disagrees with this line of thought. She told the publication The Rumpus this. She said, no one goes to a plastic surgery clinic in Korea and tells the surgeon, I want to look more white. The ideals of modern Korean beauty are actually quite different from the ideals of modern American beauty. Isn't that interesting? So interesting. Because then I also read this piece by a writer by the name of Vanessa Hua, who wrote about this book, right, and said in the aftermath of the Korean War, American surgeons helped reconstruct disfigured soldiers and eventually began experimenting with procedures to create a round-eyed look, transplanting cartilage to the nose and suturing folds of skin into a double lid. It's now a common cosmetic treatment in a country where plastic surgery is everywhere and it's central to the lives of Char's vivid characters. So I guess, I don't know, maybe both of those things are true. And then on that 
thread as well here in kind of Eurocentric countries or countries that uphold Eurocentric standards of beauty, that cat eye plastic surgery has really risen. Mm. So we've been accused here, like Australians, I know people in the UK, America, have been accused of adopting Asian standards of beauty and kind of culturally appropriating that way. So it's interesting that maybe the opposite is true in both different cultures. Yeah, it's so it's Asian fishing. I've heard yeah. this term around. I don't know where I stand. Before I read this from Francis, I would have agreed with kind of like the main lines of discourse yeah. that I see a lot of Asian women, East Asian women, enlarging their eyes and like adding more to their noses that mirror like the white kind of look. Mm. And I think that I would have agreed with that, but I'm not saying that Frances Char is wrong at all. Like it's, as you said, both can be true. Yeah, exactly. I found it really interesting as well that Frances said that she did a lot of firsthand research about mm. the plastic surgery culture in South Korea by going to clinics and asking, you know, the plastic surgeons for their recommendations. And she said it was, I guess, pretty confronting for her because she hadn't had any surgery done before, but central to the premise of the book. Yeah. I also think it was interesting how this book positioned plastic surgery, not just as maybe a tool to become more beautiful or a tool to get a man or a husband, but importantly, a tool to get employed. Like that was something I'd really never considered before. And I think Francis Cha really gave us an interesting entry point to that kind of discussion in this book as well. I also think before we get into kind of unpacking the main characters or the main themes, what have you, we need to talk about the fact that Francis did not write this book to be an indictment on Korean society. She gave a really interesting interview to Interview Magazine where she said, I did not write this book as an indictment on Korean society, although it has been received as such by some readers. I very much love Korea and Korean society and the culture and just wanted to tell these stories. She's not saying either that South Korea is an inferior country to the US. She said, I'm thinking of, for example, birth control, which was something I mentioned in one of my storylines. It's stacked on top of every pharmaceutical counter in Korea. You can buy boxes of it without having to show any ID. In the States, I have not visited an OB in the States ever because it's so hard to get an appointment. It's ridiculous. I think it's really important when we have these conversations to not trash Korean culture. This is just a really interesting analysis of what actually goes on there. Yeah, I think just the layers of the culture. I mean, I haven't read anyone really trashing the culture in any way, but talking about like the many layers that exist in it in the same ways that they exist in Australia or the US. I also found it really interesting when she spoke about kind of the attitudes towards plastic surgery that exist both in Korea and America. And she told Refinery29, I cringe sometimes when I hear people describe my book as dealing with a society in which women get plastic surgery just like they're getting a haircut. It sounds really bad when you put it like that. But I wanted to explore why women choose to undergo these extreme procedures and the answer is often very practical. In the Western world, it's associated with being vain. In South Korea, the reasons are often economic. Mm. It's like we have a very Western perception or perspective, I should say, on what plastic surgery means and the reasons that women do it. And I think that's a really important quote from her. And it's so funny as well, Mish, when you say like Frances Char has had to come out quite a few times and say this is not an indictment on South Korea. It's like in every interview I read with her, and I feel like I read quite a few in the lead up to this episode, 
everyone's like talking about, you know, her perspective on South Korea or whether this is she's speaking on behalf of South Korea. And also just as interestingly, in a lot of the interviews that I read, they all seem to mention the Academy Award winning film Parasite. Yes. And it's like these two things are even comparable and it became very, very clear to me how few mm. pieces of art we have in the Western world from South Korea if, A, these two things, this movie and this book are in the same sentence. Which have nothing to do with each other. Exactly. And secondly, that she always has to clarify, I'm not speaking on behalf of South Korea, an entire country. (laughs) I'm just writing a story. Also, on top of that, I mean, the one other book I think I've read in my time that really unpacks Korean culture was Pachinko. But that was in the early 20th century. It didn't even remotely dip into present day or current day society. So I think it's really important to have this touch point with modern day Korea because we really don't see a platform very much in Australia for sure. All right, guys. So we've spoken a little bit about Francis. We've spoken quite a bit about the backdrop of plastic surgery culture in South Korea. Let's go straight into the characters because obviously this book focuses in on about, I guess, five key women who I have many, many thoughts about. (laughs) Michelle, I'm going to start with you. Talk to me about maybe your favourite character. My favourite character was incredibly easy to pinpoint. I think Curie was the most compelling, the most interesting person in this book and without a doubt should have been the only protagonist. I know we always get onto these bikes <laughs> and I always give my editing like insight, which nobody even values to begin with because who would want me as a book editor? But I don't know, guys. I think every other character in this book was a little clunky. I couldn't see them as well in my mind. Whereas whenever Curie's chapters came up or whenever Curie appeared in a scene even, the storyline was kind of dancing on the page. I just felt like she was by far and away the strongest character, the only character I could pinpoint who had any kind of arc or growth across the novel. I mean, she was also our entry point into the discussion of plastic surgery, our entry point into the discussion of sex work, even class mobility. When you look at the key themes discussed in If I Had Your Face, Curie delivers on every single one of them. And in some ways, her strength as a character pointed out the weaknesses in the others for me. What about you, Annabelle? I only had Curie's name written down no. here. I don't mean to sound condescending, but it was... <laughs> not, they are fake characters. No, yeah. But the other characters, their weakness made me sad, like reading them so desperately try to keep up with appearances and like climb the social ladder to no avail made me sad. But Curie was the exception. Like she had strength and she had this like bold personality. Interestingly, Frances has said on the record that Curie's boldness stems from her having no family. And in turn, there's no expectations to uphold, which is why she just like goes about everything so boldly. The quote from Francis reads like this. I think Curie's power is that of her extreme practicality and ability to understand boundaries, but at times to cross them as she feels like it, because she has the freedom of having nothing to lose. And that's the essence of Curie that I loved. Yeah, and I agree with both of you. She was definitely my favourite character by far, but I also think she had the most to work with when it comes to her storyline. Like, she had the least to lose. She also had, like, this hard edge to her, but she was, like, a little bit soft too. She was bold. Like, you said mm. that a few times, and I think that's one of the key words that come up when I think of her is just she was just, like, effortlessly bold. She was also ridiculously practical, which was so nice because at the end when we saw her move into a line of work that she was passionate about, you kind of got the sense that it was the first time she could make decisions not just on practicality but also out of passion and love. 
I actually quite liked all the other characters. I felt protective over Ara and I'm not entirely sure why. I feel like she was painted as someone who is incredibly fragile and I think the bond written between Sujin and Ara was exceptional. Mm. Like their their closeness is unlike anything I could imagine, how protective Sujin was over Ara, how they were each other's families. Like I thought that was incredibly strong and maybe that's why I felt a bit protective over Ara. There was a real kind of synchronicity between those two characters that was like electric. It was amazing how they would give up everything for one another. Like they were each other's family and you got a sense that they would be forever. I also think that there's a chance that actually maybe even though Kiri was my favourite character, that Sujin actually was one of the strongest because I felt like I knew her quite well and she wasn't even a narrator. Like I find that ridiculous. When I was reading the book, I could not fathom at all why we had four narrators (laughs) with five characters. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And then when I had finished, I was like, you know what, maybe it doesn't matter because I feel like I know her. And, yeah, I kind of wish I knew her from her, but it's a pretty interesting thing to learn about someone through the eyes of other people. And I was like, that's actually a really interesting device. Yeah, especially given Sujin was the one who underwent so much drastic surgery and made that huge decision. It's so funny. We were all sitting in the office and you turned to us, Zara, and said, isn't it weird that Sujin never narrated her own story? And it had not crossed my mind even once. Even after analysing it, I hadn't realised that I had only learnt about Sujin's motivations for surgery through the women in her orbit. And that does speak to Francis Char's strength as a story storyteller that Sujin was so effectively illustrated to us. I agree. I think she was a strong character. I do disagree with you on Ara, but I might get to that when we discuss our personal weaknesses in the book. I didn't mind Miho. I thought she was a pretty gritty, pretty compelling character as well. I just truly felt like they should have been satellites to Curie. Yeah, I didn't mind Miho and I didn't mind Ara. Again, they all the, all the other characters aside from Curie were just like, <laughs> yeah, I quite liked Miho. Like I, you know, I, it's always a good sign when you see the name at the top of the page, whoever's narrating next, and you're like, oh yeah, I'm like really interested. I get around her. Yeah, like, <laughs> we're back. Let's do this. I think her storyline felt interesting and layered in a way, maybe because she was dating her late best friend's partner. Like yeah. that as a storyline that was subtle was like very interesting to me. I was like, this is layered but realistic for me. I also loved the art. I think the the idea of her sculptures and her being in her studio and crafting art out of her experiences, I really loved that in the book. This might be a totally random inclusion, but if I was to ask for one narrated chapter by a character that we got nothing from, it would have been Bruce. I found the character of Bruce, that guy who would go into the room salon and sleep with Curie and was kind Kind of her boyfriend or she was his girlfriend while he was seriously dating women on the side and he lived in this upper echelon of society. I wanted an insight into that. And if it wasn't that, maybe it could have been Hanbird, the other entry point we had into that upper echelon of society. Those were the characters where I really wanted to know that little bit more. Whereas some of the narrators, I was like, I actually don't give many fucks about you. They would have been infuriating chapters to yeah. read though. Like when Bruce replied to Curie's text with a, okay, now fuck off. I was yeah. like, Oh, my God, that's all I needed. I feel like any more and I would have, like, been throwing bricks at the wall. Yeah, I didn't need that, to be honest. I mean, I think it was probably more powerful that we had all of them sort of 
portrayed on a maybe I guess a similar level of class maybe if I had any other chapters or narrators it would have been Handen but maybe because he was described as hot (laughs) some eye candy would be nice (laughs) and you just knew he was fucking sexy as well you could tell he was really hot yeah hot and then and a dickhead surprise surprise (laughs) no one and a dickhead too guys we are going to get to more of what we loved and what we thought could have been a bit better in the book but first a word from today's sponsor Alrighty, guys, let's talk about the stuff that we really, really loved in this book. Annabelle, mm. I want to start with you. What really sung to you? It would have to be the depiction of the level of importance that women hold over their beauty and like the way that beauty was used as a tool, as you mentioned before, Mish, like in their career mm. and also like in their love lives, I guess, as well, but also how Francis made the clear, stark reality that female beauty by no means equates to respect. Like, it's by no means a social leveller. That was done really well. What I found really interesting about that, I wonder if this stood out to you guys, was the commentary that the lower levels of society had no plastic surgery, they could never afford it. Lower middle class had plastic surgery but lived forever in debt trying to pay it off. Middle class had plastic surgery, could pay it off, but the upper, upper tiers never got plastic surgery. There was this commentary of if you're high enough in society, you don't need that. Like you're kind of being looked down upon from the very top tiers of women because they're so wealthy and so privileged they couldn't possibly need to change their face. Yeah, well, I guess it speaks right back to Frances's point that it's not about vanity in any way, shape or form. It's just purely a decision people make based on economics. Mm. Like you're just doing it to try and rise through the ranks of society. But the other point that Frances makes time and time and time again is it's almost impossible to do that. Yeah. And if anything, like the choice to do that is used as a tool by some of the characters in this book to demean others. Like I feel Mm. like Curie as a room salon girl and her manager, not the guy, the girl, what was her name? Oh, the madam. Madam used like Curie's decisions to have plastic surgery against her, kind of like to push her down a bit. Yeah, it was really interesting as well because Curie was saying, well, if you get enough plastic surgery, you'll end up in the top 10% room, Mm. which is what she had found herself in. And that's something to really aspire towards. But then she also said, well, you don't just get surgery and then stop one day. You are constantly expected to refine and refine and refine to stay in that top 10% and you can never really get on top of any of it. I found that coupling of the theme of plastic surgery with sex work to be incredibly compelling and definitely the highlight and strong point of this book. One quote that I really loved in particular was, so the girl gets jailed and fined for prostitution and vilified in society as someone who does this for easy money. The girls who die in the process, the ones who are beaten to death or the ones who kill themselves, they don't even make the news. It's really interesting to me that room salons are such an embedded part of Korean culture, it sounds like. So many men seem to go to them and seem to really enjoy them and yet the women who work in them are trashed. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I read from Frances Cha is like the only people that lose out of room selling culture are women, either the partners of the women who are being cheated on or the women that work there. There was a really good review about this book in the Washington Post that said, Charles' book deftly renders a society in which upward mobility is extraordinarily difficult and what passes as advancement for poor women is often soul-crushing. And I read that and I thought, that's bang on, but why didn't I leave this book feeling depressed? Like, why didn't I feel flat or heavy when I was reading this? Because it's true. It's like, yeah, these women try to advance, but it's near impossible. And the review went on and said, it would feel bleak if not for the women themselves 
themselves who occasionally surprise with their compassion and bravery. I think that kind of nailed it for me because by no means were these characters my favourite characters in the whole wide world. I actually think most of the time they were okay and it was those occasional spurtings. Is that even a word? Spurting. 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 Sprouting. Sprinkling. Occasional sprinklings of surprise, like elements of unpredictability where I was like these characters are very layered and perhaps I'll never know them Mm. in their entirety or in their kind of fullest way just in these 270 pages. Mm, It's a glimpse, right? I think I kept reading that from reviewers who really adored this book. If you're expecting to have neat bows on every little storyline, you're here for the wrong reasons. It's all about the themes and it's all about these touch points with these characters for a particular moment. I had that Zara review written down as well from the Washington Post. That review is one that likens this book to Parasite. They all do. Yeah, Yeah, but I actually kind of agreed with it in a way in that both works of art illustrate the fact that it's really hard to move upwards like the mm. idea of like social mobility yeah whatever. mobility yeah. yeah and how like yeah how difficult it is to advance as a woman like that is kind of soul crushing as the review says no and I agree with that there are definitely like parallels when it comes to that theme I think it's just the fact that it comes up every time <laughs> yeah. that I'm like Guys, we probably need to be commissioning a bit more work if this is the only thing we can be talking about right now. And it does seem like people are really waiting to (laughs) shove in the parasite reference to be like, here, guys, here's your other point of reference for this, which is a bit uncomfortable. I mean, it's an awkward point to make when we're talking about strengths of a book, but I think the tying of plastic surgery, sex work, class mobility with the theme of suicide and how Korea is known as also the suicide capital of the world, or at least up there in the top countries when it comes to people taking their own lives. I found that to be really compelling and interesting. Again, here's another quote from the book. In the original story, the little mermaid endures unspeakable pain to gain her human legs. The sea witch warns her that her new feet will feel as if she's walking on wetter blades, but she will be able to dance like no human has ever danced before. And so she drinks the witch's potion, which slices through her body like a sword. I just think the way suicide was spoken about in this book was really clever. Like I felt like I got it and I had always heard this, I think a little bit about South Korea and I'd never really understood why. And I think the class mobility thing, the the mentality of you live for today, you need to get through today. Thinking about the future is an impossible task really drove that point home. Yeah, I think the other thing that I really adored about this book is there was a line, I think, early on in in some of the first few pages when Kiyuri is at the plastic surgery clinic and that K-pop star walks Mm -hmm. in that she's kind of trying to emulate. And Cha wrote this from the perspective of Kiyuri. I wanted to reach over and shake her by the shoulders, stop running around like a fool. I wanted to say you have so much and you can do anything you want. I would live your life so much better than you if I had your face. And obviously it's because this K-pop star was like bawling in the centre of controversy and all these kinds of things. And I think the way that Char explores so beautifully how all these women are told that all their problems will be solved when they fix their faces and that at every point the world tells them that, that's not the case at all, but it's almost like they have to ignore that. Like Curie knows at every point when she changes her face, her life is not getting better, but she mm. has to do it for survival. Mm. And yet she still looks at this other very beautiful person being like, my life would be perfect if I looked like you. And it's like that cognitive dissonance that exists in all of their minds is quite remarkable. I thought Frances Char did an exceptional job of writing that. Mm. Can I bring another strength to the table? Yeah, yes. of course. Uh, I know this is the most Michelle Andrews point to make <laughs> under the sun, but I really enjoyed the cheating storyline. <laughs> 
<laughs> I loved the way that Miho caught her cheating little rat of a partner, Hanbin. I love that she saw it on television that another woman was like, I'm going to go through the internal dash cam of my partner's car and I'll play it through my computer and the SD card. And she was like, I'm going to go do the same thing. And I was just delighted. Like I was delighted by this little tidbit. I know it probably only took up maybe four pages of the book, which was 260-something pages long, but it filled my cup, which I know is weird because I just fucking love cheating storylines. I loved this storyline as well. And also, like, there was a whole passage from Miho's perspective of what she was going to do after finding out that he cheated. And, like, before breaking up with him, she was going to, like, take everything first. She said... I will become a lightning storm, a nuclear <laughs> apocalypse. And I was like, yes, you will, girl. <laughs> See, this is why I quite liked Miho because I was like, she was such an enigma and you feel like yeah. there's real grit lingering below the surface. Like she's not copying any shit. One thing on that though, and I'm sorry to bring a weakness in the chat about strengths, I wanted to see a little bit of it. I think one of my feelings in this book was we were told a lot without being shown a lot and I wanted a scene. I thought the book could have ended so beautifully on a scene where Miho doesn't have to fucking set his house on fire but she could do a little something to make him feel the pain that he caused her. Like that would have been a cool way to end the book. I would have loved to kind of read that jubilation of her getting revenge and acting revenge on him. And but was, it was that even possible in this? Like, do you really want to make an enemy of this guy? Like, yes. we're talking so much about class mobility and how people look down on you. And it's like, yes, she was really wronged, but is that reasonable? Like, I know, are we just applying the things that we would do? to this kind of society? It could have been as simple as a comment she was wearing a diamond necklace around her neck in that final scene. So we could know that she got like 40 grand out of this guy before she left him. It could have been so simple and so little. I'm not saying I need a whole like fireworks display. I just wanted a sentence that popped in to be like, yes, she fucking wreaked her havoc. That she was like strong enough to pull through with this plan of like ruining this guy. Because Frances did show us all the times that the boyfriend had offered her things and she'd turn them down because she was like trying to play the the good girlfriend. Mm. And I'd kind of wanted, I agree with you, Michelle. Just a necklace. I'm sure, but my perspective was like, I'm sure she will get this. I want to see it. (laughs) I think think this does speak to, if we want to speak about weaknesses now anyway, because we're there. I know that a lot of people were frustrated because they were like, well, so much wasn't tied up. I kind of didn't need it tied up. I was like, well, I'm pretty sure that's going that way and that's going that way and that's going that way. I don't need you to tell me explicitly. I feel like you might feel differently, Michelle. Well, no, I can appreciate that. I I agree with you. I don't think it needs that. I think maybe the little niggling feeling I had of, oh, this would have been great to be tied up was compounded by the fact that I had a few grievances with this book, which were pretty startling. So one was the inclusion of Warner, which is so funny because we've gone how many minutes now talking about this book and Warner has not even copped a single mention The inclusion of one-up felt downright (laughs) bizarre to me. First of all, she wasn't connected to any of the other characters apart from living beneath them. She was a different age demo. I felt like it weakened the book. This book would have been stronger to really tap into that 20-something culture, not get into the idea of babies and motherhood and maternity leave and office culture. It really felt like, potentially, Frances Char was wanting to discuss certain themes in this book like she almost had a checklist of everything she wanted to tick off but in my opinion Wana should have been left for a follow-up book Wana was not a character in here it would have been so deeply served by removing her and shoving her in meant we had less time to actually unpack the shit I cared about which was plastic surgery and sex work 
Interestingly, I read an interview and Frances Chas said that Wanda was partially inspired by herself and like her own postpartum experience. Mm. So that's probably why she felt the need to shove it in because maybe... Well, like speaking personally, it's easier to write about things that happen in your own life. Yeah, Yeah. that's really, really interesting. I think for me, what I actually struggled with is the argument or the kind of tagline you see around this book about how, yes, all these women are struggling, but friendship is the salve for all. And I'm Mm. like, were these girls even that close? (laughs) Like, truthfully, I've already spoken about Ara and Sujan. That's a completely different story. That That relationship is remarkable and, yes, in my opinion, is a salve in this book. But Miho and Kiri, like, they were just roommates and they only really got to know Wana towards the end. Like, yes, these girls had a lovely relationship, but I felt by no means was it the solution to all their problems or the thing that kept them sane. I didn't believe that. That is so bang on. And that's what makes me even angry about the wanna thing. Every time (laughs) I think about it, I'm like, it's criminal that she was in this book. It's so (laughs) annoying. I do have one other critique that I would like Mm -hmm. to level. The character of Ara, I just want to unpack for a second, particularly the scene where she literally bashes her co-worker, Cherry. So for those who can't remember, read the book a while ago, whatever, Ara is a hairdresser. She is mute. She has an assistant in Cherry who is basically pretty difficult to work with, really doesn't help her, disappears when she needs her, is a bit of a bitch. But Ara retaliates by physically shoving her head in a toilet bowl repeatedly and then it is never dealt with. There's no, like, retribution. Cherry doesn't go to her boss and say, by the way, the hairdresser assaulted me the other day. Cherry just leaves the business, which felt, number one, inexplicable to me. Number two, really unrealistic because Cherry had the power in that situation. Cherry was the one who was friends with all the other girls in the salon She was the one who was bullying Ara, if anything. I don't understand why someone in that situation would just go, well, I'm giving up my job. I'm never going back to work. I've just been bashed. The only explanation I can have is that I just felt throughout the entire book that people were like tiptoeing around Ara so as to keep her emotions like, because she seemed like she'd gone through a lot and it just felt like she needed a lot of nurturing. So maybe Cherry was like, oh, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) She was fragile though, for sure. And I think the mute storyline was unlike anything I'd ever read because I was like, I don't quite understand what's led you to this path. But part of me thinks this must be like a psychological muteness. I don't know if that's like the correct turn of phrase. It doesn't sound quite right when I say it out loud. I didn't read it as a psychological no, thing. You said you said you read it as physical, but I mm. was like, I read it as psychological, not as in like she's choosing not to speak, but actually can't because of her trauma. That's how I read it. Yeah. yeah. I read it as like literal physiological trauma to her brain that affected the function of speech. And you know what? Maybe that would make sense because one of the other things that I wanted to raise in this section was about the K-pop storyline and how it felt a bit immature. Mm. And perhaps if, you know, we had a bit more explanation about Ara's injury, it would make more sense that she maybe would be the most immature person in the book or would just have different cognitive function to her friends because Mm. that whole storyline read a bit strangely to me. Yeah. I also thought that it was like a psychological 
muteness again that's probably not the right term because I, I don't really understand like the medical stuff yeah. I felt like it acted in the same way that a repressed memory would yeah like you don't know why and maybe one day it'll come back but we also weren't told and I maybe yeah. that was the point that we were like meant to kind of form our own opinions about it yeah but it was a really interesting storyline and when it was kind of dangled in front of us about like what's the traumatic thing that happened to Ara and then we got there I was like oh I wasn't quite expecting this like this felt particularly random yeah I agree I it's a curious point about the immaturity in the K-pop fandom. I would actually need to do more research into it because I feel like it's such a phenomenon over in Korea that we don't really have a reference point for totally. it here in Australia. So I would love to know, genuinely love to know, what's the average age of like a K-pop fan or stan? I imagine it would be a teenager kind of demo but I genuinely don't know. I feel like it's a whole other universe of K-pop fandom. I know some K-pop fans that are my age, like 23, 24. But for me, it's not about being a fan. It's like the lengths that she wants to go yeah. to almost ruin oh, yeah. her life for this. Like that was the immature part. It's bordering on stalkering. That's for me the strange part about the story. Not at all being like a stan. <laughs> People stands at any age. Yeah. But it was like that level that I was like, hmm, this is interesting. Shout out to Harry Styles and Taylor Swift if you're listening. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Guys, we've come to that point in the episode. I am desperate to hear your ratings. Annabelle, I'm staring right at you. I'm yes. very interested. How would you rate this book out of five? Well, before we jumped behind these mics, Mish said to me that I can't do 0.5s anymore. Yes, you can. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. You can't. <laughs> what I would like to table in this episode is something that Re, who's in our Shameless Media office, she's our wonderful partnerships manager, she brought it up with us a couple of weeks ago saying, when you're rating things out of 10, which when we do 0.5s, we are essentially, yes. take out sevens <laughs> because yeah. seven means you can just kind of coast through and go, hey, it was all right. If you can't do seven, you have to go a six or an eight. And that's really a I defining think, factor. I think that's relevant. We're talking about out of 10, but out of five, it's like to distinguish between mm. different books, you need that 0.5 star. I also think if I may, at the end of every year or the end of every year we do book club, we rank every book that we've read in the last 12 months based on our ratings that we give right now. So I'm going to reject that roundly. Well, maybe we can bring it up when we refresh and we have a whole new roster of books. Sure. Now give me a rating. Yes. <laughs> so to help future us when we do all of that, I'm going to give this book a 3.5. Nice. Verging towards the three, just because I felt like, as you said, Mish, there felt, it felt like there was a lot that was trying to be crammed into this book. Fair. I liked it though. I really did enjoy it. I also it's said to you okay. before. <laughs> I also said to you before that I felt like pressure reading this book because I feel like I left it quite late. And I usually do, but this time around it wasn't as pleasant of an experience because of that. Mm, interesting. It is an interesting experience when you're reading on a deadline. I read this over summer, so yeah. I could like read it on my own clock. Yeah. Hmm. My reading. <laughs> Look, it might sound brutal. I want to be clear. I loved the opening of this book. I was like, oh God, this is so for me. Absolutely adoring it. Halfway through, I think it got a little bit lost with the addition of Wana. I think it could have been a hundred pages longer, even if you took Wana out to flesh out some of the concepts a little more. It was a little confusing. I'm going to go 2.5. Is that your lowest you've given this year? Maybe. I mean, it's February. I say this year because our book club year is actually <laughs> financial year. Financial year. <laughs> so, it's the most commercial year. book club ever. End of book year. I mean, give it a four. I love, I really did love this book. It's yeah. why I wanted to talk about it. I know it's not for everyone. I appreciate that. But I think the way that you described it before, it being like a glimpse mm. rather than a dive, I 
really, really loved. I mean, it wasn't without its fault, but I thought it was one of the strongest books I read over summer. And you know what? I don't think a strong book club book has to be a five. If anything, I enjoy these conversations more when we disagree yeah, or we have things we want to table. There is more to say. So I'm totally open to more 2.5 books. I also have another point to make quickly. I know it's the very end of the episode, <laughs> but there was never a point in this book where this is Frances Charles' first novel yeah. that I felt like, oh, that was weird. Like that read weird. She's a really good writer, I must yes. say. Yeah, no, she wrote it beautifully. Annabelle's sweating over a 3.5. Oh, no, <laughs> if you're listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for listening to the February instalment of The Shameless Book Club. Next month, we're reading a book called Violetta. Yeah, this novel, which was penned by New York Times bestselling author Isabel Alonde, tells the epic story of Violetta Duval, a woman whose life spans 100 years and bears witness to the greatest upheavals of the 20th century. On top of that, you've got the dissolution of a family fortune, a tempestuous marriage into First with love affairs, the machinations of family and friends over a century, all set against political upheaval in her homeland, an unnamed Latin American country. We cannot wait to dive into this one. In the meantime, guys, tell us your thoughts on If I Had Your Face by Frances Cha. We will share our ratings over on our Instagram page at The Shameless Book Club. We'd love to chat with you. Otherwise, guys, we will be back in your ears on Monday with the third instalment of our Making Sense of Miley Cyrus scandal series. We'll speak to you then. We'd love to chat with you. Bye. <laughs>